In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. My guest today, Dr. Bruce Piasecki, author and business advisor, is the president and founder of the AHC Group, a management consulting firm specializing in energy, materials, and environmental corporate matters since 1981. He's also the author of seven seminal books on business strategy, valuation, and corporate change, including the Nature Society's Book of the Year, In Search of Environmental Excellence, Moving Beyond Blame. Notably, his book World Inc. has reached over eight foreign editions since its release in 2007. It's also won awards in globalization and in the Japanese edition, and it's now available as The Surprising Solution. His articles have appeared in the Los Angeles Times, Baltimore Sun, Technology Review, and the Christian Science Monitor. His latest book, The Surprising Solution, was published in 2010. Since 1990, Dr. Bruce Piasecki and his staff have run hundreds of benchmarking workshops for numerous multinational corporate affiliates, involving key executives in site remediation, power markets, emerging issues, and governance concerns since Enron. The corporate affiliate workshops have now reached over 3,000 leaders over the last 20 years. Dr. Piasecki has moved to the field of environmental and energy strategy closer to financial markets and mainstream financial diagnostics. The group has achieved this through a series of key alliances, including a multi-year agreement with Innovest and Island Press. Dr. Bruce Piasecki. Welcome to In Discussion today and my special guest, Dr. Bruce Piasecki. Bruce, welcome to you. Good to hear from you, David. It has been a wonderful journey this last year that I have spent with you on these programs as we continue them and, of course, had the great pleasure to spend time with you last week at the Corporate AHC Workshop. I'd like to spend today starting off with your upcoming book, Doing More With Less, Another Way to Wealth, follows on with your series of books. A short definition of that book and how the methodology came around to writing a book with this tone and manner, with this look upon society and the corporate structure as you do. Well, you know, one of the things that happens to a writer, you know, after you've been trying it for 30 years is you realize you'll be lucky if you have another 30. So you get a little serious, but you also get a little sportive in your seriousness. And I think Doing More With Less has proven to be the most fun book to write. It gave me a chance to look at my original self, which was uh, exceedingly competitive as an athlete. And it helped me. The first third of the book is about, it's called In the Company of Knuckleheads. And it's about how competitiveness, which is healthy and human, can easily become excessive and bloated and self-important. And then the second third of the book is about the need 
for frugality when the seventh billion person is born and how difficult that will be for some successful cultures and successful people to adjust uh, to the needs of being artful in competitive frugality. In the final third of the book, I tried to achieve a tone. You talk with the phrase turn and manner. I tried to create a voice that was like a happy grandfather that was looking back across the pattern of 50 um, years or five decades and tried to talk to the new generation uh, about new grounds for hope. So it's a kind of one, two, three punch book that way, competition, frugality, and the near future. We have shared many programs, and we also share a love of literature, Benjamin Franklin, Lincoln, Shakespeare, of course. I notice, though, in your book that you refer to the biographies of those who do more with less, who thrive in the face of limits. I'm looking at page 38, and you cite there some very compelling figures, Joan of Arc, Gandhi, Abe Lincoln. What was it that brought you to these individuals in this chapter, particularly Joan of Arc? I'm terribly interested in seeing what your scope is there, what you see in Joan of Arc as to where we are today. It's a great question. I, I guess um, your listeners may remember that I've spent most of the last 30 years advising large multinational corporations, um, entities that are as big as Toyota at $200 billion, or a Warren Buffett firm, or lately a new chemical firm run by 22 people I work for. And in that experience, you're inside a corporate mansion, you feel like you have an abundance of resources, a lot of human talent, and many choices. What you realize after doing it for 30 years, that in the end, you're really fighting for effectiveness. You're fighting for making a better product, making a more sustainable company. And in order to do that, you have to bounce against the walls of limits. You have to be like a Joan of Arc or a Gandhi in the end, that folks who learned that from little things, from scarcity they could create some significant historic change. Now, Joan of Arc is the most difficult because in terms of history, we really only have stories about her, almost like a Robin Hood. We have very detailed court proceedings of the French bureaucracy um, processing her and also of her comments to the church fathers. Uh, and so you have both the bias of a dominant culture that's looking at her emerging suggestions in a really complex way. In the case of Gandhi, you have his own writing, and then you have some very famous you know, BBC accounts of his travels, or you have very thorough studies like Attenborough's uh, famous movie of him, Gandhi. And, and then in case, the one that I know the best is Franklin, having you know, read what, what he wrote. In, in all cases, the, these people found another way to effectiveness. They found another way to feel wealth in the world by asking to consume less, by asking non-materialistic questions of change. And I believe that we all, as citizens of the world, will reach that kind of Gandhi insight or Lincoln insight, and I feel most comfortable talking next about Lincoln, or someone like Joan of Arc who found a set of higher facts 
that stimulated people through charisma with so little higher education, so little resources. And so I think this book, Doing More With Less, coming out of the recent global downturn, coming out of the real challenge of how many resources do governments have in Greece or America, I'm really interested in a world that must become less warlike, more diplomatic, uh, more frugal, and more inventive. And you talk about this across the book itself. You raise the issues of money and excess, social interaction, uh, even uh, governance. Can we start off and refer back to those as we go? We did spend time in the last week with heads of corporations who are looking at sustainability in this case at this event can you with that said and and perhaps adding a slant on this as to how these great people would think about these issues even though they may have lived a very long time ago the concepts are still the same the issues are still the same and the approach that we have to apply is still the same the corporations though in terms of market needs, are they beginning to switch their sense of values now, their philosophies to the way that people act and think and view and perceive them and their corporations? Are they beginning to look at that in a much deeper methodology? In my experience, they have, and I've had the chance to listen to them for more than 20 years, you know, running and facilitating this 3,300-person network of many companies. Let me say the first thing that I think would be useful. My book, World Inc., which came out in 2007, is the book in which I tried to sum up the rude discovery that corporations are larger than nation-states in many instances now. So the first thing to say after that rude reawakening, is that most of our ideas in Western civilization about fairness and equity and quality of human exchange come from government-based reflections, like the Federalist Papers or Supreme Court decisions or speeches by Lincoln. What I find hopeful and surprising is that a fair number of social solutions in this century will derive from not government action, which we still need government for national defense and and the assertion of privacy and for health dynamics, for example, and we will always have governments. But there is a growing relationship between financial controls, the needs of sustainability, and risk management. And my work is very much about the ways to take action in that growing interaction where corporations are a larger part of society, perhaps in a way that during the time of Shakespeare, church communities were, or in the time of Lincoln, governments were. So uh, what I'm trying to do as a social historian is describe ways to take action in a swift and severe world that are very much, David, dominated by corporations whether we like them or not. Well, this would lead me to say, and would you agree that to a great extent now that it will be corporations that lead the way in the future rather than any visions by the government? 
somehow returning back to where we were as a republic with the constitution where they certainly looked upon as government as negative effect apart from regulation and this is where today in what you may remember as the epoch that i talk about where corporations will begin to realign society where government cannot well you know what's fascinating about human evolution about the human condition to me is that you will always have room for individual contribution, you know, the, the contribution of a genius or the contribution of a hardworking, efficient person. What I'm noticing is that when it comes to human capital or valuable insights into how products need to be changed or the whole idea of leadership, these things in my last 30 years are becoming more corporate. And it's almost as if, and this is why Doing More With Less is a book both for government leaders and corporate leaders and ordinary citizens in the sense that there are only a few notes in the end, the musical notes, that exist to play a symphony. You know, there's, let's say there's only a dozen musical notes, even though some people argue that there are really, to the human ear, even less. And yet it's the combinations of those limited musical notes that give rise to the most beautiful melodies of the world. It's the same in social history. My new book is about the proper alignment of rules, money, and people. And we tend to think that corporations control the money, but what's both alarming and rude in my awakening is that they often pre-shape the rules and they also are increasingly attracting the best minds. In that context, I'm interested in my limited role in shaping the near future by influencing corporations. The music they play is what I'm trying to influence. Your page 86 of your new book, Under the Purpose of Money, where you state money is not only about money or the making of more money. Money is about respect, reputation, and revenue. It is about social transactions, social capital. That applies, does it not, as much to the corporations, the boardroom members, and the middle blower management as much as it does to the consumers? There is now in this world that is approaching an equal responsibility, and therefore an equal responsibility for all of those parties to educate each other as to how they operate their lives. You know, it's really interesting as a small businessman. You know, I've made this little corporation, ahcgroup.com, over since 1981. And I see more and more social history in, the, in action in watching how we achieve reputation from a client or how we satisfy a relationship with another larger client or how we earn respect. And just for a minute, let's think about the human capital element. And I believe my new book is relevant to the woman in Bangladesh starting a new small company to the young person starting a car washing enterprise. We have to learn how to recruit and retain human talent. In, in many ways, that's the thing that can better align money, people, and rules. We, we also have to learn how to motivate employees, and then we have to build 
innovation capacity within our firm so that the knowledge we develop and the clients we serve are both healthy and safe, but also productive in a progressive sense in that they're providing value to society. So I've come to see that the larger corporations are trying to do that, but they're screwing up inadvertently the musical score at times. And so as a management consultant, I've often been given the job to realign human capital, to realign strategies that allow um, the dissonance in a firm to achieve a higher fidelity. And so human capital is a thing, but then if you take it a step further, David, and I think your listeners are those special listeners that are interested in this, it's not just about making your own company, it's also realizing that in the act of making a company or serving companies, you're also generating social capital. Now, for the longest time, because of the thinking of Deming and Duran and the Quality Revolution, people thought of it as stakeholder capital. And I remember when I was a student at Cornell, I took year-long courses on wage, labor, and capital. And I thought the whole relationship was about labor relations. Does somebody get a quarter and somebody cough up a nickel? Well, I now think of it as social capital. The relationship is social capital. And so my firm is able to find alliance partners that add a large halo effect to my firm, um, as opposed to assuming that they would all always want to buy or disturb what I, what I wanted to create. So there are many key intangible value drivers in society. I think they tend to be money, people, and rules, and the skills you develop in learning how to make those things productive and humane. At this point in my life, I have actual trouble asking myself, who's going to shape the near future? Is that going to be the creative class? Is that going to be the corporate class? Or is it going to be the technical class? And what I've come to conclude is they're all interacting as part of a society that's in a dire need to get a transformation fast. You talk about the musical score. I think that's an incredible way of painting this picture. We then look at social capital. And then what I look at, having been a COO of a very large company back in the early 90s, is I look at this linear scale from the boardroom to the consumer and the philosophies that start in the boardroom mm-hmm. under advisory consultants or marketeers or advertising agencies. Is it the case still in the larger corporations that those philosophies are not infused into or understood by those in middle management and further down the scale so that you have a gap between the boardroom and those philosophies and the end consumers? Well, that is a great question, and I actually think it's one of those lifelong Shakespearean questions that you can only answer in particular cases, you know, and so we have plenty of evidence that in firms like Enron, there was a profound disconnect between the ordinary people who were transacting the rules and the distorting influences of those at the top. And there are many other kinds of animals in the zoo that have wonderfully enlightened and diverse boards but don't know how to execute. Uh, In addition, there are companies that have more talent in the middle than at the top. And so what's interesting about the kind of work I get to do 
is that if you accept the fact that there's only a few musical notes as to how to run a corporation, it seems as if the firms that learn how to do more with less, in other words, have a less burdensome governance structure, have a very efficient execution, uh, we can call it scheme or protocol, and also have a healthy array of products. So that it is difficult, David, for me to honestly answer the question, where's the problem? And in doing more with less, the middle of my book tries to take on Jim Collins and suggest that the problem is throughout the corporation in many people, not just a problem at the top. And that's what I've come to observe. It doesn't necessarily mean that I'm correct. What is the way forward for the corporations, therefore, with that all said? Given that we know that we have a expanding population, we know that we are definitely going to come across problems with resources, food, water, etc. What is the precise way that corporations have to look at in people in order to serve them that is very much out of the box in the way that they have thought through these processes before? Great question. I, I, any of your listeners can go to social change or I think the webpage is called changethis.com and see a free example of, of how I really work out in 25 pages this notion of social response capitalism. But I think the most radical idea that I've come up in my 55 years is I've come to conclude that the corporations have to wake up and realize that in addition to cultivating human talent and creating better and better products, they now have a moral obligation to help society focus choices in the near future. And those choices essentially need to be less wasteful, more frugal. We have to learn how corporations can help us choose a better car or a better computer or a better piece of clothing. And so the irony of this whole thing is that the capitalism that we've created after World War II is a capitalism predicated on maybe four or five billion people and superabundant oil. Um, the capitalism that I'm beginning to see is a readjustment of the social contract with a deeper connection to people's frugal needs. It sounds abstract, but I see HP doing it in their all-in-one product series where you get a printer, a copier, and a fax all-in-one in a small space for Africa and Indonesia, not just for sprawling suburban areas of California. I see it in Toyota's pursuit of the hybrid powertrain. I see it in various firms that are trying to make the $800 computer. This notion of doing more with less is the state of the art, I believe, in corporate strategy. In the word frugality, given that we are all looking at each other as a mirror these days, as we all become far more conscious of the world that we live in, given the problems that we have with the climate environment. Therefore, the corporation, if it's going to apply that method of frugality or doing more with less on the citizen, on the consumers, then if they're looking in the mirror, they also have to apply that principle 
to themselves. Absolutely. Now, the thing that's interesting about waste, and this is why the first third of my book is called In the Company of Knuckleheads. When I was a basketball player, David, it was amazing how long it took me to realize how many of my gestures and how many of my modes of operation were wasteful. Um, I think it was maybe in my 10th year as a ball player that I could begin to understand why a Steve Nash of the Phoenix Suns at six foot one has been the most valuable player of the NBA for so many years. He, he does so much with less. It, it's the same in a corporation. Once you learn that so much of the marketing is wasteful, uh, once you learn how many of the rules are inefficient, once you learn how to take uncertainty and ambiguity out of your equations of tolerable risk, you can develop strategies that allow the firm to grow and also position itself for greater sustainability without contradiction. You can create, as I write in my books, a better product for a better world. You can reshape a better leader for this more finite world. So the question is, how do you stimulate that connection to the arts of competitive frugality? And in my thinking, you can't do it in any draconian or rule-intensive way. I think there's something in human nature that people want to be delighted by the concept of doing more with less rather than being told they have to do more with less. And that's the deep paradox of the mid and final sections of this new book because I'm trying to ask humans the question, why are you more fond of Gandhi in retrospect or Joan of Arc or Abe Lincoln than you are of the many billionaires through human history. I mean, there have been kings of the past that were the moral equivalent of billionaires, and there's only a few hundred billionaires today, but most of us really don't care to think about them. We might say a few things about Warren Buffett or Gates, but we really, humanity resides in those who do more with less. You quote as Schumacher in your book, concepts like products designed to serve the human person. The way that you're defining, though, this is a road that has a source in the corporation that creates this life force. So this life force that you refer to as a paradox, that is the equation that we have to work out so that people don't feel as if they are being targeted, but rather being, as I mentioned last week, cherished with the gifts that that corporation can provide them. So that paradox that you talk about, does that in a way change the marketing strategies that we've had in the past? It must do as we move forward in order to avoid any feelings of isolation, feelings of jealousy, or whatever those feelings are by people of the corporations and by the people who own them. How do you see that occurring? Because it seems to me, by the way that you're describing this, that the traditional branding, marketing communications that we've had in the past may not, I would suggest, be able to handle what you're proposing. I think what I am proposing will be attacked 
by the classical MBA program and will also be mocked by the marketing gurus. Um, Let me describe it in terms of risk. It's probable that before you and I, David, turn 90, that there'll be 9 billion people on Earth. Sometime this year, there'll be 7 billion, right? So by the end of 2011, and when we were born, there were 4 billion or less. So take now the reality of arable land. We all know we need food. We all know we need shelter. We all know we need products because humans are tinkerers and we need technology. We need the technology of mobility, the technology of computing, etc. Well, taking those needs, the old way of thinking about risk in terms of a corporation was eliminated through an engineering or technical solution. It was mitigated through public affairs and lobbying and marketing. And if you can, transfer the risk to a supplier or a buyer through some means of insurance or overpricing. Um, These are the normal musical scores that any great corporate strategist plays in order to mitigate risk. Well, in a world of 7 billion people, there needs to be a new way to think about risk. My, My last two books are really books about thinking about risk in a new way. We have to look at global regulations rather than just nation-state-based regulations. We have to look at what forms of competition are knucklehead forms of competition. Like that, that, by a knucklehead, I mean those fans of athletes who follow them around and try and slide into first base at Mets Shea Stadium naked, and they think they're helping their firm. In the end, the new way of understanding risk has to do with the reality that corporations are now the big players in the game of modern life, and they need to protect their social value. They have to protect their product stream so that the reputation is seen as contributing to the game of life rather than expending or taking away from the game of life, and that all of this can be measured, quantified, and manageable. Well, how do you do that? Well, the first way you do it is create what sustainability advocates call product stewardship programs. You know, the whole idea of take-backs in electronics, the whole idea of green engines, the whole idea of doing life cycle analysis so that the risks are understood as social risks rather than the risks of those who first make the product. So there is a shift occurring. My work is about how capitalism is catalyzing that risk that it's not being created by moral argument. It's being created by market forces, and it's being created by the physical reality of more people on Earth with less arable land. And that's what motivates my understanding of how the world works. And that is a different approach, I would say. I had put in our notes point 11. As you know, I spend much of my time in California. I visit groups that are involved in permaculture and community organizations, foundations, etc., across the state, and further, indeed. And they always talk about Mm -hmm. co-creation. This is something, actually, that our friend Susan Anthony uh, in England talks about, co-creating the future together through these shared values that you define under this social capitalism. It is a tough road because you're talking to corporations, you're talking to corporate leaders 
who perhaps won't understand that there is a side to what you're talking about that is very much hitting not only the thoughts of great writers from the past, but it's also hitting the basic humanities and those laws. And that takes a lot of shaping to be able to train them towards that sort of thinking. Well said. And I like this tradition that you're tapping into because it is bringing humanity back uh, into the equation. So let me say it this way. It, in, it's very difficult for many citizens to trust um, life in a corporate mansion, even though the reality is many of them have chosen that life. It's particularly difficult if most viewers of a corporate mansion perceive it as only about near-term profit to benefit the few at the top. If instead we think of co-creating our understanding of a corporation now in the near future, where that corporation knows how to deal with its neighborhood of human talent, how it knows how to select and respect innovation, and how it grows in this winter of our scarce needs without hubris and with some humility inputted by stockholders and stakeholders. That is, in fact, forms of co-creation. Now, the social progressives who are doing the lead thinking of that in California or, say, uh, guys like David Gershon, whose book Social Change 2.0 is a wonderful book about co-creation, they understand that something bigger than the corporations will force those corporations to change. The way in which my thinking is a little different than some of those social progressives, which I read and enjoy, is I think they're going to be changed by physical facts, not just by moral persuasion. This is entering into quite a complex subject, being able to bridge these two, because they are in some ways very close together, but in others very far apart. I'd like to just go back to your book, if I may. Sure. And I do love this paragraph, Another Way to Wealth Creation, which is leading on from what you were just saying. Wealth includes the full glory of wealth creation, not just material gains. The things that fulfill me are the bonds at work and home balanced with the joys of being in society. We explore here the entire role you play in fixing society's many woes from family and friends to your firm and the world at large. And this, I think, is where I'm going with this phrase, co-creation. It applies so much to that statement that you've made there. Absolutely. I think that the whole notion that any person who wants to participate in a world of solutions, we need to begin to put our feet on a bridge to the near future. Now, many of us do it through some kind of prayer or some kind of internal self-esteem or psychological dread. I don't know what the motivation is, but many of us get on that bridge of walking to the near future with this idea that others will come with us and help co-create it. Many of the popular phrases throughout the world that you'll hear from plumbers to taxi drivers to book readers is that Rome wasn't built in a day or, you know, you can't have a team with just one individual. There is something true that I'm trying to get out in my book that's larger than a corporate interest, and that is 
the needs of society. Some of people just decide to describe those who get on the bridge of fighting for the near future as people who are born twice, you know, once in themselves and once in their family of society. Or some people describe them as, like Joan of Arc has been described by Mark Twain as a very lovely but peculiar person because she wanted to race into the future faster than most French soldiers even could. You can be ahead of your skis, David, in time, but um, what I'm finding is that the best planners and the people who are going to go furthest down this bridge of the future also have with them what I'm getting at in my new book, which is a kind of pragmatism of helping focus large groups of people and making choices in a shared future. And I think that's nothing less than leadership. As you know, Bruce, I started this program crossing over the bridge and it's not about individuals commencing to cross over that bridge from one end and groups the other or the corporate establishment from one end and the conscious community from the other end it's actually people walking onto that bridge together and crossing over the bridge to the other side and breaking down the walls together as they cross and and finding this new paradigm that we talk about and when you talk about uh, frugality, and particularly when you talk about competitive frugality, in your book, Under Walking Home, where you talk about the fact that this has the ability to set you free, this suggests to me that, as with many scientists and, and philosophers that I work with, they talk about us having to find ourselves first, our inner self, and I think that there's a, a, a huge truth to that before we can help others. And I wonder whether that could be translated over or put into context for groups, whether it's a group in a corporation, whether it's a conscious community in Ecuador, California. I wonder how that could work, thinking way out of the box now. Well, I love the questions, and, and every time I've ever been interviewed you, I think about it, and I believe I grow. One, one of the things that I think we also have to get out on the table, and this is why my writing is becoming more creative and more delightful rather than the first five or six books were information intensive, is because it is true. Heidegger got it right when he talked about it's easy for a human to prefer idle talk to creative talk. Once you get on the bridge of walking home into your near future, it does depend on an inner self. It does depend on a supporting family dynamics, and it does depend on communities of concern. Um, but I think it, on the sportive side of this new book, the one where I try and be grandfatherly by a warm fire, and it, you know, most human satisfaction derives from things like flattery or gossip or kindness or humility, <laughs> and they don't really come from technology or profit margins or other things. And so I've tried to write this new book as a 55-year-old man who's been exceedingly competitive for at least 40 of those 55 years. Ever since I was 10, I could remember the anger of not winning. I could remember the looking for challenges. I could remember the sense of life was the determination and the discipline to get there first. 
And it appears to me now at midlife that the world may not support even the kind of knucklehead I was in my youth, that we have to come to the discovery of being on the bridge in a less wasteful way sooner than later. And that's the urgency that I feel in my work, and perhaps that's the message of the work. Perhaps not winning as you define it, but indeed participating in a joint celebration, all of us together in that victory, that would be a better way forward, would you think? I like that thought, because first of all, what it does is it allows all the magical things of human connection, such as forgiveness or generosity. You know, when you think about Joan of Arc, how she must have uh, done so much with so little, um, you know, she had to put on the, the gear of soldiers and men in order to enter the kind of heart that she was advocating. When you think of Lincoln looking at a nation which for 10 years was spending all of its resources trying to divide into two economies, and him deciding to build a bridge to the near future that allowed the hope of a union. In, in all of these instances, walking home for those leaders was about hearing the fire in their own belly, the inner self, saying, you could participate in this, and, and you're justified in participating in it. And then in the act of participating, finding some larger society that you are part of. Now, what's particularly interesting about the debates in society now, you know, created by entities such as the anger of the Tea Party, is that right now society is trying to figure out where to go next. It's, there's a dominant culture that believes only in money and technology. There's a progressive culture that believes in co-creation and, and other progressive values. And there's also a reactive culture that's trying its best to defeat the progressive and the dominant and take us back 50 years. I think perhaps, David, social history has always been dominated by that complex mix of different forces, just like the best corporations allow some debate like that in their C-suite or their boardroom. So the thing that's particularly difficult um, for me to say at the end of this new book, and the reason why this new book ends with a pretty, uh, my most personal finale called Tomorrow Will Tell, is I think I've developed within myself an understanding that things will work out over time for physical reasons, and that we will achieve frugality rather than muddle towards it, but that it will take many losses and many lost gains to find a way to get there. We're talking about Joan of Arc, another name that comes to mind, Martin Luther, the Diet of Warm, that, that great time. These amazing people who put their lives on the line, they effectively drove society and history. They were leaders and yet the unfortunate thing is that they had to sacrifice themselves to achieve that and then when you look at today you still have leaders and you have followers and placing that into context with the corporation is that they need to understand that the role of the leader and the role of the follower has parity and should not be seen one above the other but on an equal plane and moreover, the three 
tiers that you provided there, the dominant party, the progressive and the reactive. Well, today, if you look at the events in Egypt, the, the reactive party possibly could be a return to old world thinking. Exactly. Whether it's communism, fascism, socialism, it, it doesn't matter. But I, I would certainly think that in this gap, when we certainly could have a chaos, which is a good chaos, you will have these areas of concern of people wondering whether they should go forward or go back to the old paradigms. And I guess it is the job of the leaders to ensure that that movement is straight ahead and not sideways and not backwards. And I think history shows us that it's important to pursue these corporate visions, these social needs to move forward in a context of some informed humility. And that the wise words of someone like uh, Lincoln or the wise words of someone like Marcus Aurelius have been very helpful, and I quote them in this new book in a respectful way, because I don't necessarily believe that we need to sacrifice ourselves to the cause. In fact, Part of what I'm arguing is that we need to become less warlike in an overpopulated world. But these are very difficult concepts, and everybody, I'm sure, has their own opinion. But in my new work, I tried to achieve as great a transparency and as good a read as I could on the subjects of money, people, and rules, knowing that whether you're a beginner or at midlife or a person running a very large system, you have an obligation to align those things properly and to be competitive and frugal, I believe. And in again, returning back to your book, Finding Loyalty, I love that. There is a very powerful message in that. It's as powerful as respect, uh, love, compassion. Finding loyalty perhaps is the underwriting rule or way forward that we should look at that defines that relationship between the corporations, between them and the citizens and the people, and, of course, the other way around so that it becomes reciprocal. I very much like that thought. I guess one way to also think of it is as you get older, I come to realize the value of loyalty and the value of giving loyalty more than I ever did before. And that's a step way beyond the simple kind of competitiveness I was first trained for. Bruce Piasecki, it has been, again, a great pleasure spending this time with you, and I'm going to look forward to spending many more programs with you in the future. Thanks for your time, David, and your mission. We'll see you again. And to our listeners today, I hope that you enjoyed this program as much as I. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.
In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. 